Are you here for the first thing you notice about leaders? I'm Gleaves Whitney. And uh, this is like on the airplane, you know, if they say, if you're not going to Grand Rapids, then get off now. Actually, close the doors, let's keep them in because they're going to really enjoy this presentation. I'm just teasing. <laughs> you don't literally have to lock the doors. Um, I, um, I think Saturday morning lectures, I mean, and for those of us to stay up really late Friday night, this is still early morning, right? Saturday morning lectures are always tough. Um, I remember telling a student one time, or a, a group of students on Saturday morning, what Alvin Barkley, who was uh, Truman's vice president, said about um, good audiences. Alvin Barkley said that good audiences are smart, well-educated, and a little drunk. And when I told the students that, one student raised his hand and he said, well, does having a hangover count? <laughs> Saturday morning audiences can be a little tough. We're going to keep this as lively as possible. What I want to talk to you today are about the five or six characteristics of leadership that I, in my experience, working around leaders and studying leaders have observed. I want to share these with you. And I also want to lard my talk quite a bit today with Abraham Lincoln. The reason I'm doing that is that we're celebrating the 200th anniversary of Lincoln's birth this year. In fact, on February 12th will be the exact anniversary. It's coming up next Thursday. So I'm going to uh, use a lot of examples from Lincoln. But let's go ahead and get started. I'd like to, uh, to talk uh, not too long. Uh, I want to make sure you have plenty of opportunities to ask questions. And then I've been asked to give you a few minutes at the very end of the session. So probably around 11.55, is that work, uh, for filling out an evaluation. OK, what's the first thing you notice about leaders? The first thing I think you would notice about leaders is that they're a people person. They're somebody who really enjoy interacting with people. Now, they could even be an introvert and enjoy interacting with people. Introverts, after all, we're told, are people who are not necessarily antisocial. Introverts are actually people who aren't energized so much by people. But they love to have a public role if they're given one. The extrovert comes away from dealing with people feeling energized. The introvert comes away feeling innervated. But they both can enjoy interacting with people. That's an important distinction. You know, I don't know about you, but when I was raised, my mom taught me that there are two kinds of people who walk into a room. There's one kind of person who walks into the room and says, ha, here I am. Aren't I the greatest thing? You really need to get to know me. Real ego. The second kind of person who walks into the room is a person who walks in and he says, there you are, there you are, there you are, there you are, and I can't wait to get to know you. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders are the second kind of person. True leaders are not the ego who walks into the door and says, here I am. Because those people immediately inspire a little bit of distrust. They don't know if you're going to connect with them. True leaders are the ones who, when they walk into the room, you immediately sense they want to connect with you because they want to get to know you. They have a propensity to like you. You have to have those people skills to be a leader. You cannot have the ego to be a true leader. In our democracy, leadership is based on trust. Leadership is about relationship. It's about forging those bonds between the leader and the led. The leader is a kind of servant. 
for the rest of us. That's leadership. It's not the guy just coming in the room and say, I'm going to just dominate the whole thing. I don't care what you have to say. By sheer force of personality and thinking I'm always right, I'm going to tell you what to do. Who wants to follow a jerk like that? Because you know what? They're not even going to start to listen to you. They don't care what you have to say. And so in our democracy where trust has to be earned, leadership has to be earned as well. So you turn off and say, no. I would rather follow somebody who is willing to serve rather than just dominate. This isn't a dictatorship in America or on the PTA board or on the school board. No, leadership is about relationship. It's about people who want to get to know and connect with other people. Now, Abraham Lincoln illustrates this brilliantly in so many ways. When Abraham Lincoln was a kid, he was awkward. He was the ugliest kid on the frontier. Everybody thought that this guy was just plain ugly. He was gawky, he was tall, he was awkward. You would have looked at Abraham Lincoln on the frontier, and if, if we had a time machine and we were able to go back and look at Lincoln in one of the most remote areas of the United States in 1809 when he was born, in one of the most primitive conditions in terms of the ability to get an education because he had one year of schooling his entire life, one year, this tall, gangly kid who didn't seem to have much going for him coming from a cabin with a dirt floor. In fact, Abraham Lincoln's family and, and their neighbors, the families who would visit his particular family, they said Lincoln was poorer than most frontier families, the, the family Lincoln grew up in, with Thomas and Nancy, his dad and mom. He grew up in terrible situations. <coughs> and you know, without the, the schooling, without the material well-being, physically ugly, socially awkward. He was very awkward around girls, for example, growing up. And yet he had a special quality that people saw from the very beginning. That special quality was his ability to connect with people. Now he's awkward around the girls, but what the boys noticed was that he would go to church on Sunday morning and he would come back and he would sort of stand in a, a fence with the fence railing there. You know how you kind of weave your legs into a fence rail? And he would totally re-talk the sermon he had heard that morning and the lessons, but he would do it with humor. And he'd get the kids laughing. He learned he had an ability to connect. He wanted to make people pleased. He, he wanted to please them. He wanted to connect with them. He loved to tell stories. He had all these ways that he learned to overcome his material poverty, his lack of schooling, his, his ugliness, to make himself a likable person. And he knew to be likable, he had to reach out to others instead of just be the ego. Now, he sure thought he was plenty smart. We have evidence from his early letters that he thought, yeah, he knew he was above average intelligence. But he did not use that above average intelligence to dominate or to be arrogant over others. He sincerely tried to connect with them. This was an important quality. This goes a long way to explaining how one of the ugliest people ever in American politics, with arguably the least formal schooling of any but Andrew Johnson, his successor, <coughs> 
This goes far to explain how a guy could go from this low all the way to the top office in the United States of America. He didn't do it because of political connections that he was born with. He didn't do it because of his Harvard education. He didn't do it because his family had a lot of money in the Eastern establishment. Think of what he overcame. And he did it primarily because he was a people person. He connected. Now, he was introverted. He found people innervating. And he would go and he'd recharge his battery by reading or by taking long walks. It was reported that in Washington, D.C., as president, you could see him taking long walks through the streets. In those days, you know, uh, you didn't have all the, the cars, the black limos, and the SUVs, and the Secret Service around you, and the hordes that exist today. So Lincoln is a very interesting case study in being a people person. Another way of looking at being a people person is to say, people don't care what you know until they know you care. People don't care what you know until they know you care. Ladies and gentlemen, just have to establish that relationship, that bond with other human beings if you ever want them to follow you. That's the key. That's the first thing you notice about a leader walking into a room. The second thing you might notice about a leader walking into a room is that they have passion. They have passion for what they do and what they think. These are not milk toast people. These are not uh, wallflower type people. Leaders are energized by something. Often we call it ambition. And that's okay. There is a good kind of ambition to have. A strong ambition is what gets you out of bed in the morning to go and do something. People who don't have a goal to go toward, why do they get up in the morning? They might as well just sleep in. They might as well not do their homework. They might as well not look for that next job. They might as well never, not seek the extra promo promotion. People who are energized, who have a passion for what they're doing, often become leaders in some capacity. Now, in Lincoln's case, he had a strong sense when he would be standing up there on the fence and entertaining the boys around him. He had a strong sense that people would listen to him if he could weave that good story, if he could tell the truth about something that maybe was not said. He, he loved to imitate, and he mastered the art of reaching out to people and conveying that he cared about something really strongly. And he transitioned in his life from wanting to be just ambitious to make a mark, you know, just to get ahead, which is one kind of ambition, and it's fine, especially when you're young and you're not fully formed yet. You don't know yet where you're quite going. He said, I want to make a mark on life. We know from his letters, he said, I've got to redeem. I, I come from this, this, this primitive existence in Kentucky and Indiana and then Illinois, and I could live my whole life and not make any mark. People would never know that A. Lincoln existed if I don't do something significant. I want to do something significant to redeem the fact that I've eaten lots of meals, I've known a lot of people, I've been part of a great country, but what am I doing with it? So he had a passion initially through his ambition to do something great. But he went the step further. It wasn't just to do something great for the sake of doing something great. He latched on to a problem. 
that this country was having. The problem was not slavery per se. He thought in the long run we would have to deal with slavery. But what Lincoln really latched onto was the problem of the expansion of slavery into the West. He was a Westerner. He understood that for freedom to flourish, slavery could not expand. The first thing you had to do is stop it in its tracks so that it could not expand West. Then we'll work on abolishing it altogether. But the first thing you have to do is keep it contained to the South. And this lit up his passion. Now, a lot of people have passed around on the Internet these stories that Abraham Lincoln knew failure after failure after failure after failure and kept rising to become the great person he was through his passion. There's a grain of truth in that. But Lincoln, don't, don't, don't be deceived by these urban legends that get passed around on the Internet. Don't be deceived. Lincoln was an extraordinarily successful person. Yes, he had a business or two that failed. Yes, he had some runs in the State House where he did not succeed. Yes, he had a U.S. Senate run where he did not succeed in 1858, but he won the popular vote. Remember, that was before the amendment that changed to the popular vote. He actually won the popular vote in 1858 versus Douglas. So Lincoln had a lot of successes in his life. So don't be deceived that by the idea that this was a guy who just was always down and out. Uh-uh. That passion kept him successful. A very, very important quality he had. He, he failed enough to learn from his failures, but not so much that it just beat him down where he couldn't, he couldn't recover. It's very important to understand that he had the passion now to, to take the successes he had and now do something great for the country. That's what made him an extraordinary human being to overcome those limitations we just talked about. He saw that slavery would eventually have to be dealt with in this country in its expansion to Western territories. And he fought like crazy for that. Starting in really the late 1840s, 1850s, he was willing against, to go against his party even on this principle. He was one of the few people in the, the one term he served in Congress he took the most unpopular position you could take when we were fighting the Mexican War. And he stood against President Polk. In the start of the war with Mexico, he said, and this may sound familiar to you today, I will support funding for the troops, but I oppose the war. And Mr. President, I demand you show me the spot where U.S. troops or U.S. territory was violated by the Mexicans. Because he knew that Polk could not prove through an international treaty, could not prove that the Mexicans actually attacked U.S. territory. It was the territory was disputed between the Nueces and the Rio Grande Rivers. Well, Lincoln was a lawyer, a self-taught lawyer, and he knew that Polk could not prove that. He used his passion then to stand on principle and take very unpopular stands in the public arena. But it's very clear that where his trajectory was. He had a very clear vision. And that's the third thing that you notice about a leader. They're, they're connected to people. They have passion for what they do. And they also have some vision. They have the capacity to imagine something better or something right. That's the third thing that you want to notice about a leader. And if you want to be a leader, 
It's something that you need to cultivate in yourself. Where do you want your church to go? Where do you want your university to go? Where do you want your football team to go? Whatever group you feel passionate about, where do you want your state to go? Your county, your nation, whatever you feel passionate about. That's what you lock onto and you try to imagine something better. If you find yourself absorbed in that activity, you're on your way to becoming a leader. And my point, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't matter how poor your origins were. It doesn't matter what your political connections were. It doesn't matter how much formal schooling you had. What matters is that you're educated. There's a difference between being educated and being formally schooled. Schooled is what happens when we get inside a building. Education is the hard work that comes when we're reading, we're learning when we're talking to people, we're thinking, we're doing the hard work of thinking. There are a lot of people I know who don't have a college degree who are a lot more educated than the person with a diploma. Lincoln, good example of that. The quality of the leader, though, is to have the imagination to see where to take the organization you care about, no matter what the level is, as I just suggested. And leaders find themselves, wherever they are in life, taking the organization that they can influence and moving it in a better direction. <clears throat> so when Lincoln is a representative in state government of Illinois, he knows it will do the state a lot of good to move the capital away from Vandalia to Springfield. It'll be that the whole population of the state is moving north and so he leads that charge and he's successful in that. Lincoln had a vision for his state. He wanted Illinois to remain a free state and it would because of the Missouri Compromise. But all of a sudden, all of a sudden, in the 1850s when the concept of popular sovereignty is introduced, in the Compromise of 1850, which is worked out by Douglas and the great compromiser Henry Clay. Is all this familiar to you from your American history? Compromise of 1850, all of a sudden, states are going to be able to say whether they want slavery or not. And Lincoln was afraid that once that concept took root, that any state eventually, like there'd be a constitutional amendment down the road that would say, okay, we're going to open up every state to whether we'll have slaves or not. Lincoln knew that that's not where the United States had to go. The same country that had generated the Declaration of Independence and said all men are created equal and held out the promise that all human beings would be able to pursue happiness in the way that they saw fit, consistent with integrity and respecting their neighbors, said that country cannot be a country that tolerates slavery and the expansion of slavery over the long haul. So Lincoln was very clear. He had the imagination to see where this country went. He had the imagination to link the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and go all the way forward to what our future would be. Now let me show you how his imagination was really dramatically illustrated. We always associate Lincoln, do we not, with the Civil War, with knitting back together North and South and being willing to fight for that. But it's not just a north-south thing that Lincoln is talking about. He's also talking about an east-west thing. This is his vision. He sees the United States better than most people of his generation becoming not just a continental power, but a global power. 
It is Abraham Lincoln, is one of the handful of people before 1865 that sees the United States becoming the most powerful nation in the world. That takes imagination because it hadn't existed yet. You have to be able to project what that means. And he knew that for that to happen, there couldn't be slavery. That would be just the most ultimate violation if slavery kept expanding with the country. That would be the most ultimate violation of our principles. He knew that we would have to have tariff-free commerce from east to west, north to south. He knew that we would have to have uh, a strong manufacturing base where we would have the economic strength. He also knew that we would have to provide free land for all these settlers coming into this country. He knew that every immigrant group that came to the United States ended up within a generation better off than where it had come from. Within a generation, the immigrants who came to the United States were doing better than where they had come from. Ladies and gentlemen, that's why they had immigrated, where they came from. They were the third sons, the fourth sons, the fourth daughters of families. They didn't enjoy, you know, if, if, if they were third, fourth, fifth sons, they did not enjoy the laws of primogenitor where, you know, the, the, the firstborn son would get all of the wealth. And these were, the, these were considered the dregs of society, the dregs back in Europe, the dregs in Asia. And they came to this country and within a generation they had the opportunity to give their kids a better life. Lincoln saw that. He perceived very clearly the potential of this country if we had a country that was knit not just north and south, put, put the United States back together after that dreadful civil war, but east and west so that we would we'd be able to function as, a, as a, um, a healthy democracy that was true to its principles, growing economically, and uh, amassing enough strength to become the, the world's greatest moral and material power. Lincoln had that vision, and that, that, that's, that's, a, that's a vision that will get you up out of bed in the morning. That's huge. It's just huge. One of the handful of human beings who really saw the potential of this country and why it was important. Now, you understand why it was important, he said. It's very controversial now when we hear about it, but why he said in his first inaugural address, I will, I will respect the fact that Slavery exists in the South, but I will not tolerate it expanding to the West. But in that first inaugural address, he says, I will respect slavery if it means we can stay unified. That's the most important thing. If we're going to have this march to become a great moral and material nation, the greatest ever on the face of the earth, we've got to make sure that we stay unified. Slavery will be abolished. It will disappear. That was his position. So he had, he had imagination, he had vision of what this country had, and that's, that's something that's very important for leaders. A fourth quality you're going to notice about leaders, their character. One of the greatest opportunities that I ever had was uh, I was given the access to President Ford uh, in Vail, Colorado in August 2005. I was the last person who conducted a series of interviews with President Ford. There were a couple of people who saw him after I did for single interviews, but I was the last one to have a series of interviews with him in his study in his home. And I asked President Ford, what's the most important quality of leadership to you? After all your years, here's a guy who's in his 90s and he's reflecting on leaders and I'm asking him to share with me his wisdom. And he said, character. And he added trust. 
He said, people need to have a strong character to be leaders. They need to be able to inspire trust. That's what I started with, isn't it? Let's look at the strong character component here. Let's look at Lincoln just a little bit more as an example of that. The way I like to, to teach Lincoln is not just that here's a guy who overcame material poverty. Again, you're familiar with the story. We just rehearsed it. You know, though, the, the dirt poor conditions, literally dirt floor cabin on the frontier, poor even amid uh, poverty. You know his poverty. You know that to overcome those kinds of, of conditions takes a strong character. But you know what Lincoln really had to overcome that was worse than material poverty? There are things worse than material poverty. It's emotional poverty. It's somebody who has experienced a great deal of rejection and death and loss. Emotional poverty is something that plagued Lincoln from early in his life, made him prone to terrible depression, bouts of depression. Let me tell you a little bit about his emotional poverty. When he was just a nine-year-old kid, uh, his mom dies. He watches her. He's stuck with her in a, I mean, we're talking about a cabin. Has anybody seen the, the, the cabin of his boy, boyhood? Um, there are several of them, but this one would be in Indiana, southern Indiana. And they're stuck together in this little bitty room that would probably about be the space of just these tables over. Okay, I mean, this would be a generous-sized cabin on the frontier for the kids, the parents, the extended family who would come and visit. We're talking about something smaller than your rooms, probably, your, your dorm rooms or your apartments. Certainly no bigger. He had to be with his mom while she died, spent a week dying an agonizing death. It wasn't any of this, you know, how Americans have sanitized death. We take people off to nursing homes where they can die out of sight. We take people off to the hospital. Uh, we put them in hospice situations. We load them up with morphine. We do a lot of things as palliatives to help them and to help those of us who've got to survive dying. Ladies and gentlemen, on the frontier, you didn't have palliatives. If somebody was going to die an agonizing death and there was no doctor in the neighborhood, well, death's ugly. And his mother got this milkweed infection, or milk uh, sickness, and um, it, it, it is just apparently, from, from the descriptions I've read, where doctors have gone back and they have talked about what the symptoms would have been that Lincoln would have observed in his mom. It really is horrifying. It's, a, it's the kind of... Uh, Sickness where you writhe, your tongue swells, your eyes roll, you sweat, you hallucinate. Um, it was very, very disturbing for this young boy, this nine-year-old, to watch the woman who had brought him into the world leave this world that way. And he helped his dad, after her death, uh, actually construct the coffin. And somebody observed that he just, he just sort of went into himself to survive. You know, just mechanically, you know, carved and shaped and, you know, went into his own head. Um, other people died who were very close to him. 
<coughs> early on. He was very estranged from his father. He had a terrible relationship with his father. Now think of this. This poor little kid, his mom dies, and, and now his, his dad is always on his case. This is part of the emotional poverty. Always on his case because Abraham Lincoln wants to read instead of be a farmer. Abraham Lincoln wants to improve his mind more than improve the earth. He just knows that he's not farming stock. It's just something he's born with. And his, his father's rejection of him and his criticism of him and his beating of him certainly made Lincoln feel uh, less worthy uh, to, or I should say, less likely to pursue the uh, course that his father set out for him. His father was very rough. And um, it, it's no accident that, that Lincoln, Lincoln took his, as his first jobs off the farm, um, being a merchant, uh, transporting materials would be like the, the modern day equivalent of being a trucker you know, down the Mississippi River. Lincoln was always looking for ways to get off that farm and to make money in another way. And he eventually goes into politics, as you know, he eventually becomes a lawyer, does anything to escape being a farmer. And what he saw is the emotional poverty of his, of his dad, his dad's criticism that he wanted to read. And he'd be beaten when he'd be caught reading, you know, if, if his dad had chores for him to do. Tough, tough life. Um, he didn't even go to his dad's funeral when his dad died around 1850. Um, Lincoln pretty much had cut that relationship off. He had the ability to walk away from somebody who had done that much harm to him. Um, Lincoln was prone to depression. The most serious bout of depression that was observed was when the love of his life died. That's a young man, this guy about your age at this point, in New Salem, Illinois, and he falls in love. We know from um, the accounts of Joshua Speed and others who observed him at this time, and also from a poem that Lincoln published in the local newspaper after Ann Rutledge dies. He truly is smitten with her, and um, they, they're, they're good friends. She can talk politics. She's, she's smart. They have a great relationship. And she also then dies one of these terrible deaths that sweeps the frontier. I don't know if it was cholera or typhoid or what it was, but she also dies an agonizing death. Before she dies, he makes one last visit to her home, you know, and the door is closed. No one knows what was said. But he came out utterly, absolutely devastated from that meeting with Ann Rutledge. And he was never able to get over her. Historians suspect that he thought about Anne every day the rest of his life until he was assassinated on April uh, 14th, 1865. So probably for the next 30 years, there was a part of him that always remained with Anne. He was so depressed after Anne's death. He was so depressed that he could not stand the thought of rain and snow coming down on Anne's grave. He was devastated by this. And you know what he did? The rain came and he literally threw himself on her grave. He was that depressed. Think of that. How many people do you know grieve openly like that? 
And this was just a very unselfconscious guy on the frontier. So we know he suffered major bouts of depression. Historians think there were six major depressive episodes that were so severe that his friends had to take all the knives away from him so that he would not commit suicide. That's how depressed he was. Now, he wasn't a guy who kept guns. He was, as, as I say, Abraham Lincoln was a little bit different as a person. As a kid, one of the reasons his dad criticized him so much is that he shot two turkeys when he was seven years old. And he felt sorry for the turkeys. He felt really bad that these beautiful birds had been killed. He presumably enjoyed eating the turkeys, but he didn't want to do the shooting. He knew that there were plenty of people all around him who enjoyed that kind of thing. Great. Let them be the, the hunters. He'd be the lawyer. He'd be the, the politician leader. So Lincoln had a great deal of emotional poverty to overcome, which is one of the things that makes him such a compelling figure. You know, when people... It, it was Booker T. Washington who said that it's one thing to say, okay, a person is great just by the absolute position they attain. Uh, but if they come from a very moneyed background, they're coming from Phillips Academy, they're coming from uh, political connections, father is probably already a senator, say, the climb to the top, while tough and while we admire it, is not the same, is it? as the person who comes from a dirt floor log cabin, poorer than dirt, in the Indiana frontier, abandoned by civilization practically. And you look at a guy like that that goes all the way to the top, and you have to say there is something special inside that person. You add to that things, unspeakable things that we wouldn't know. A father that beats you, a mother who dies an agonizing death while you're stuck in a 14 by 12 foot cabin and watching it, a sister who dies in childbirth, the love of your life who dies, all by the time you're in your mid-twenties, a terrible marriage, his marriage in a lot of ways to um, Mary Todd was a very difficult marriage. There are many strong aspects. They, they love their kids, their four kids. But you know how many of his kids died? I mean, of the four kids, three of them really didn't reach adulthood. One of them died in the White House. This was a man who knew grief and suffering again and again and again. So it's one thing, you know, to start out up here and go up here. It's another thing to start out down there and go up here. And that takes incredible inner strength and character to overcome that emotional poverty, emotional poverty, much worse than material poverty. A fifth thing that you would see about a great leader, I think, is the ability to communicate effectively. Okay, we've already established they're a people person. They know how to relate to people. They want to connect. They want people to connect with them. They'll look them in the eye, and they'll connect right with them. They want to convey their passion. They, they feel passion. They want to share their imagination, their vision for how to make something better. They have that strength of character. We talked a little bit about the trust. We talked about overcoming the emotional poverty. They have all of those qualities. But they have to have the ability to communicate what they care about. 
Abraham Lincoln arguably is the greatest statesman in our history because of his ability to communicate his vision to the country. It starts early on. If you go back already to some of his speeches to the Lyceum, for example, in the 1830s, you already see that he has a vision of what the founders were about and what the, um, the country needs to be better than the founding generation. He thought that we were in decline. So communication was very important to him. Now here's a guy, again, one year of formal schooling. Here's a guy who has just incredible educational capacity because he read, he read deeply in Shakespeare. He read Byron's poetry. He read Burns's poetry. He read Aesop's fables. He read the Old Testament. He read the New Testament. If you read his second inaugural address, you see four biblical references, for example. Here's a man who, when he was in the White House, there was no West Wing in those days, but between appointments, here was a guy who, he would have a, a little pocket edition of Shakespeare, and he would take it out, and he would read, and he was constantly thinking. And that whole house-divided passage from the book of Matthew meant so much to him that already in his Kalamazoo speech, in Mich his great, one great speech in Michigan, he's already talking about how the United States ultimately cannot be a house divided, half slave, half free. Of course, that's the biblical illusion that he's using. He knew his audience read the Bible. He knew what phrases would resonate. And he was somebody who, he, he did not write the Gettysburg Address on the back of an envelope. Um, that's myth. Here's somebody who thought long and hard about the message that he wanted to convey. Because he cared about people. If you care about people and you're trying to connect with them, you're not just getting up there and winging it. You're trying really hard to craft a message that will help them, that they can respond to, that they can use in their lives. So Abraham Lincoln was really maybe in some ways the beginnings of our rhetorical presidency, of putting emphasis on great speechifying as a way, not of aggrandizing your ego, not as a way of saying, hey, look at me, aren't I a great entertainer? Um, I have the highest ratings, Nielsen ratings, no. But as a way of furthering the cause that you believe in. So those are, those are five qualities that Abraham Lincoln had. And I would like for you to uh, feel free now to ask questions of those five qualities or if there are other things that uh, you ask, you have about leadership that you'd like to ask, please feel free to. Um, uh, we have at least 15 minutes for Q&A. Thank you very much. <laughs> Questions? Anybody want to disagree? Is there something you think you would notice about a leader other than the five things that we just talked about? Or that you would notice first? Maybe you don't. Uh, maybe you don't think that uh, one of those qualities is one of the most important. Do you have an idea? Oh no, no, no. We were talking about uh, name brand power earlier. Yes. Okay. Well, you know what? Speakers do come in with name brand power, and that goes all the way back to Aristotle. Aristotle wrote one of the greatest books of rhetoric and persuasion and leadership. It's called The Rhetoric. And he said, he used the Greek word, obviously he says he's Greek, ethos, that we keep to this day. Ethos is the person's reputation before they walk into a room. It's also a kind of persuasion, is it not? If you see a name brand, you are more inclined 
to accept and trust what that brand projects. Lincoln was a name brand. He was a, you know, uh, a guy whose principles were well known. He had gone to great lengths to communicate those through his superior communication skills. And that's why he was nominated in 1860 to run for president, because people knew that he would be a name brand. That's actually a very good point. It goes back 2,400 years. Okay. Thank you. Yes, there was a hand up over here. I just want to say I think respect should be included. It might go along with character, but yes. respecting the people you work with and then getting their respect. Absolutely. I think, let's talk a little bit. Let's break, let's, let's unpack just a little bit. What is it to be a people person? You know, when we talk about the importance, as I said, that's the first thing that you'll notice about a leader. They care about other people first. They're not just doing it for their own ego aggrandizement. I think when you walk into a room and you're saying, not first, here I am, but there you are, you know, as we already illustrated, that's the respect. You walk into a room and you're assuming that you'll, you'll be given a modicum of respect as a speaker. I mean, you should be, you know, accorded some respect. But I think the speaker also wants to make absolutely sure that he is earning the respect of his audience by respecting the audience and respecting that they're going to disagree with him. He's got to persuade them. He's got to agree when he comes in that they have different experiences. This is why we open it up for questions. Enlighten. Enlighten us. Enlighten me. I want to learn from you. Everybody in here has a different experience about leadership. When I go to audiences, I talk a lot about leadership. And when I, when I go to audiences where I ask, you know, tell me, Tell me who are leaders in your life. It's always interesting for me to hear people say, oh, well, you know, one of my parents, or this boss I had, or an uncle, or somebody very close. Could be a, like a priest or a minister. Um, a number of people, and, and you have been absorbing the lessons of leadership, perhaps not formally, but informally, all your life. You know what works. And you know now. This goes right to your point, Michelle, about respect. You know that leadership is not about force. Leadership is about persuasion. It's getting people to come along because they want to. They have elected to. And they have to respect you. They have to ex respect the, uh, the brand power. So uh, that's a very good point. It's all about being this people person. Yes, sir? We often uh, connect leaders and followers in the same breath. Yes. Some people believe if you have followers, then you are a leader. Could you speak about leaders who may not have followers, but they are still effective leaders? That, that's a very interesting point, because leadership has to be viewed over the long haul. We know that there have been people who die in prison or concentration camps who do not technically have the ability to look over the shoulders and see a bunch of people following, but through their writings continue to exert leadership. Uh, we, we can think of people from the Holocaust, for example. We can think of um, uh, people in the Nazi concentration camps. We think of people who have been in jail, um, who over the long haul uh, have exercised tremendous impact over, over us. I mean, look at somebody like Henry David Thoreau. Now, in American history, Thoreau became a, I mean, here's a guy who was willing to go to jail, but he did not seek headlines. He did not seek fame. He was willing to go to jail for his, his civil disobedience. 
Yet his writings would exert such a powerful influence over the Romantic movement in America. And by the 1960s, Thoreau had been long dead, became this cult hero all over again. Thoreau in his death became a leader, <laughs> more than he was in his life. This happens again and again. Uh, am I getting to the answer? The, the, the capacity. This is why, I mean, I love being an historian because what is history? It's the extended human memory. It's our grappling with, you know, all of the memories that we have had that have counted, that have been written down or told orally, and that have somehow been significant enough for us to remember. And the historian deals with this vast number of memories. And look at the memories that persist. Why is it that Queen Elizabeth I? or Cleopatra? Why is it that, you know, a, a, a boy who leads a crusade, a, a guy who uh, ends up, a 12-year-old, a 12-year-old who leads a crusade back in the 12th century, why is it we remember certain people in their death even more than in their life? Well, that's the capacity of us as meaning-making creatures dealing with the human memory over time, the extended memory of us all, our communal memory. So leaders, it, it's, it's the link between the living and the dead, certainly. Lincoln is a leader for many of us today. I mean, he continues to inspire. You, you sort of plumb your idea and say, how does this compare the way Lincoln would have handled this, or Washington? You know, there are many other people. Martin Luther King we just celebrated. And many, many people continue to exert leadership even after they physically are no longer here. Yeah, great point. Other questions? Yes, sir. How do you, like the brand name, um, you know, Hitler, he did all these bad things, you know, against the Jews, against the Catholics and whatnot. But if you look at what he did for the German people, how do you get away, I guess, from that bad rap and focus on the good? I, you know what I mean? Like he built infrastructures, he united the people, he brought together so much. But yeah, he did it in a bad way. Does that make, I don't know if I like. Well, no, I certainly um, most people to to keep power have to do the kinds of things that are necessary to please people. And remember, when he builds autobahns, does everybody in here know what the autobahn is? The freeway system in Germany. Why is he building the autobahn? Why is he developing the Volkswagen Beetle? Not so that the German middle class will have a cute car to drive around with flowers in a vase. Not so that they can get from Dortmund to Mannheim easily. Those are, that's military superstructure. That's, that's the military's... Uh, it, it's, it, it's used for civilian purposes before the war, but it is a military act to build the Autobahns. So don't be deceived. Hitler had a, a plan. He had many of the things we talked about. This is a very good question. I can't see your name, your oh, name tag. Robert. Robert asks a very good question. What do you do with people who are patently evil, who yet lead 65 million people or more, and who continue to inspire, say, a neo-Nazi group today? What do you do with that? That is a kind of leadership. Um, did, was he a people person? Not really. Uh, he was pretty obsessed with himself. He was the kind of guy who walked in the room and says, here I am. I'm the commanding person here, and I want your obedience. And I'm going, and, and if I don't get it, 
If I don't get your respect through fear, I will have you executed. Well, that doesn't really work in a democracy. Uh, did he have passion? Absolutely. He had passion through the roof. He hated Jews. He thought that this, uh, he believed the stab of the back myth after World War I. He believed that Jews had undermined Germany. And so his passion was to kill Jews. So he had passion through the roof. Uh, did he have a vision? Absolutely. Of a country uh, that would be purged of Jewish blood. This comes back through Houston, Stuart Chamberlain, and then so the race theory from the 19th century, back to Gobineau. He was familiar with that, so he had, he had been intellectually shaped by a vision. And he wanted to see a greater Germany with Lebensraum, in which Aryans could expand and dominate first Europe, Eurasia, Africa, and then the Western Hemisphere. I've been in Berlin and seen his master map. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazingly audacious plan for taking over the world. Um, he wouldn't have physically occupied North America, but he wanted to control our economic system so it'd feed into the Third Reich. So he had a vision, powerful imagination. Uh, did he have character? Well, yes and no. He was an ascetic. Do you know what an ascetic is? He lived a monkish existence. Um, he, he was very orderly in his habits. He was a teetotaler for the most part. He was a vegetarian. He watched his weight. He couldn't stand to see lobsters boil. This guy had no problem sending six million Jews to the gas chamber. But he couldn't stand to see lobsters boil. So, you know, he was a vegetarian. He had, he had a lot of personal discipline. Um, he thought one of his personal disciplines was to avoid women you know, until the end. I mean, he didn't want to have sex because he thought that that drained off his energy. I mean, it's a kind of character. Um, did he have the ability to communicate? Through the roof. His ability to communicate and to mobilize millions and millions of people. Women fell in love with Hitler. They've done studies. Hitler was not the most handsome guy, but even from a distance, he had a very magnetic personality, and women reported, middle-class women reported falling in love with him just the way you would a celebrity that you've never met. You say, I love that guy. <laughs> Hitler was loved by millions of people. TV, I bet you guys don't know this. TV broadcast started in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. 1935, I think, was the first large TV broadcast and people would go to like a Starbucks today. You, have, you know how you're hotwired? <clears throat> Well, in Nazi Germany, you went and you had um, the ability to go and watch TV broadcasts. Do you think this was for middle class enlightenment? No, it was to further Nazi propaganda. So he had those qualities. But what's the essential difference? He didn't use them the right way. And also, he was not in a system. In a democratic system, you have to earn trust. You cannot abuse people's trust like that. So, uh, that's, that's the issue. In a democracy, a, a Hitler, you, you cannot lead by fear and, and survive in a democracy. We are free men and women. We would not tolerate a leader who insisted on making us move forward by fear. Thank you. Well, thank you. Okay. All right, everybody. All right. Thank you. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you.